one, I, it's, uh, my watch is 101, so I thought maybe we should just get started and probably from lunch and maybe a few people straggling. But can you hear me okay in the back? Is it good? Yes? Okay, great. So welcome to uh, this section of Reformed and uh, Relevant now more than ever. My name is Dan Lanstra. I'm a Bible teacher uh, and the Director for Spiritual Life and Leadership at Unity Christian in Hudsonville. And uh, been at Unity for 20, I think this is my 24th, 25th year at Unity. And then previous to that, I taught at Susana Christian Middle School for three years as well. So I'm a Dora College graduate. And I know this is more Calvin territory here, but either way, um, it's great to be here um, this afternoon. So being at CEA over the years and leading different sections, this is a little bit of a different direction for me from what I normally have done. And I, I don't want to mislead you with a title, but I also wanted to make sure that some people who were interested in like Reformed theology also came to this one too. But it's not exactly like this in the sense that this is not going to be all theology. This is going to be more about the relevance. And I'll tell you why, and why I think that actually matters. So I want to invite you to kind of come along with me on this uh, you know, journey to, to talk about like, what about our kids today. Now this could be something that maybe in grade school, middle school, you could say, oh, this is relevant for us too, but it's really for our high school kids, and really for, fit for a lot of college kids as well. So to begin with, and, and I'll give you a chance, if we have some time at the end, I go pretty quick through these things, so I'm not trying to leave you behind, but uh, there's a lot to cover in a short amount of time. So why this topic? Hopefully you can see the screen okay. If you can't see this down here, the real question is, who cares? Right, well, what does this even matter? Why are we talking about this? The theme a few years ago at CEA was about being reformed. And here we're bringing this up, you know, sort of again. Let me give you a, a, a look back to when I was a first-year teacher at Unity. And I started there in 1995, 1996. I was a Unity grad myself, so I'd gone to Unity. And I'd grown up in Hudsonville, knew the community. If you've never been in Hudsonville, uh, literally it's true, we have more but spaces in pews and churches than butts to fill them, right? So we are a church-heavy community in Hudsonville. And uh, when I was growing up, it was a lot of Reformed-ish churches. So I uh, got a lot of that kind of growing up, Reformed theology, being Reformed, studying that kind of stuff. But I remember a class in high school that I had at Going to Unity, and the class name was Reformed Doctrine. That was the name of the class that every junior took. And I always had told my kids this when I taught at Unity, or when I taught the class at Unity. I said, uh, there's, there's a class I, I took in my life that that class stands out as different than any other class I ever took. Like, bar none, that class stood out. And I thought, well, why was that? Because with no exception, that was the most boring class I ever had in my life. I thought it down. I really wanted one. And now I'm teaching it. Right? I'm going to teach this class. And I didn't know that I was going to teach it when I was hired, because our principal, who I heard at that time, he was planning on me teaching a little more of the senior Bible and then we were going to reshuffle some of the other teachers. And I remember my senior Bible class was really interesting. I really liked it, so I was kind of fired up to, to teach it. And then some more shifting occurred, and he called me in the summer and said, yeah, we, we think we would like you to teach junior uh, level Bible. In the back of my head, I don't know what that is. I don't want to say anything because I just got hired at this school. And I uh, great. You know, that sounds really, really good. So I got the the stuff from the previous teacher, and I was like, man, how in the world am I going to do this? This, is, this might not go very well for me. So right away, I thought, from my high school experience, when my Reformed Doctrine class, the kids called it Rev Doc, uh, to what I'm going to start teaching is, there's got to be something that's different. You know what? I had it. 
so that somehow, some way, these kids are like, what in the world are we doing this for? And hopefully, in many years later, and I'll give you a glimpse of this from you know almost 30 years of teaching kids, uh, what do you think? Where are we on all this stuff? Now, I'll be right up front with you. I'm not here to give you all the answers today. I don't profess to have all the answers or this is what you should do and then everything will go fine. There's a lot of different ways people look at a topic like this. And I'm just giving you suggestions or things to think about based on a whole lot of conversations with students and you know, roughly 30 years of teaching Bible to high school students as well. One thing I want to get you to think about. I read something from uh, one of the blogs that I get from someone named Tim Elmore. Some of you know about Growing Leaders and Tim Elmore. And in one of his recent posts, he put up something about the uh, normalization of defects. And I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of that before, but the normalization of defects is when an organizational workplace uh, accepts as normal uh, recurring problems or situations that aren't where they're supposed to be, but we just live with them. Now, and then I, I'm sure some of us have heard this before, what are we supposed to do? Uh, there's nothing we can do, right? What are we supposed to do? So when you normalize the things that aren't really the way they're supposed to be, and say, well, there's not much we can do, that's the normalization of defects. And I thought to give you an example of that, that is outside of school, to give you something that most of you will have some knowledge of. One of the things I was fascinated by growing up was the space program. And uh, whenever there was a, on TV a space shuttle launch, I made sure to watch it. Well, you might know this, and you might not, but the Columbia disaster that occurred uh, back in the early 2000s uh, was a result of, to a degree, the normalization of defects. Because it's a little hard to see in this picture. The external fuel tank, the orange one there, for a long time they had issues when the, when the launch occurred that the foam from that tank, pieces of it would break off, and it would actually hit the bottom side of the shuttle, and it would create little divots and marks, and they, you could see it from that camera that they showed from outer space that there was an issue there. But they figured, well, it's always done this. We've never really had a problem with space shuttles lands, and so it's not that big of a thing. And this is actually what those things looked like. Okay, that was a chunk of the bottom of one of the space shuttles after it landed. This is what it looks like. Until one day, you know, the Columbia is, is landing, and way, way above, you know, many miles above Texas, uh, one of those well, defects got sort of invaded, and the whole thing obviously blew up, right? And, uh, and seven astronauts were killed. So the normalization of defects, like, well, now we have this huge issue, and now what are we going to do? So in a classroom setting, in a school setting, it can be easy when it comes to this sort of, like, what, what does it mean to be reformed? Well, we've always done it this way. This is the way it has been. Our kids seem to be losing interest. I don't really know how this applies anymore. But what are we supposed to do? I don't know what we're supposed to do. So I'm going to get you to try to think about like, what can you actually maybe rethink, think about differently, or think about new, that maybe avoid some of the normalization of the defects that we struggle with in the classroom. So to do that, I think it's important to say, well, where are we? You know, where actually are we in, in this whole process of like reform thinking and you know, a biblical understanding? And I started with something I thought that would just make sense. I teach seniors, and I have right now about 80 seniors uh, in, in this semester in class, and I asked them, uh, what does it mean to be reformed? And that was, that was a tough go, i got to tell you. What, that was the question, what does it mean to be reformed? 80, 17, and 18 year olds, what does it mean to be reformed? And I'm not even going to put it up there because the answers were like all over the place. Uh, so what I decided to do then is I'm going to narrow it down a little 
but I'm going to take a group of kids that specifically has chosen that in unity to be part of a group where we study what it means to lead, what it means to be Christian, what it means to live your faith, what it means to grow as a Christian. These are the kids that really are focused on like faith formation, spiritual what is this all about? I'll ask them, there's 20 of them. Yeah, there's 20 of them in that class. They're juniors and seniors. So I hate to like sort kids out, but you might put these in. These are the kids who are the most interested maybe in this kind of stuff. They've all grown up in the area of Eastern Ottawa County, which is where we live. It's heavily Christianized, and there's a ton of Reformed churches. So that was the question I gave them. No other context, no other pretext, just what does it mean to be Reformed? And you're going to have a little hard time reading this. Um, and I just thought, just to be clear on this, I thought I'd better show you a picture of the church. Right? Because that's where a lot of people get their ideas from. I don't know if this is a Reformed church because there's not a gym attached to it. Um, but it certainly is a nice looking church, right? And, and they probably have coffee. So either way, the non-denominationals, by the way, they're out doing us some coffee in a big way right now. We've got a lot of catching up to do with the coffee department and Reformed churches, but that's a whole other issue. What I asked them, uh, and 87%, by the way, just so you know, at Unity Christian, go to a Reformed church. That's our population at Unity of students who go to a Reformed church. I realize that probably because I don't know all of you teach, but I've been to enough schools doing presentations and speaking that there's a lot of our schools where Reformed is actually the minority by a long ways in their school. So uh, we, in our situation, are a little bit unusual compared to other schools that are Christian schools. But 87% of Unity students go to a Reformed type church. Most of them Christian reform. So you would think then, right, they have an understanding. So here's what they said. And I know you can't have, I'll read these because you may have a really hard time reading this. One student said, I have no idea how to describe it without comparing it to Catholic or PR. Right? So there's your markers, PR and Catholic, right? Somewhere in between is where I am, right? Whatever that means. Uh, seven people said, I don't know. Okay, these are the, what I would consider sort of the top flight kids in terms of their interests. I don't know. Seven of them said, I don't know. Three of them said, not totally sure, but I think it means more conservative. Right? So that's a perception they have. Uh, two of them said, strict on rules and traditions. Right? That's what they put down. What does it mean to be reformed? Two of them said, something with Martin Luther. Right? Okay, we're, we're good. Uh, usually I get a Martin Luther King thrown in there also.
Okay, I have 20 kids. So you get an idea that these are good kids, they're trying, but they're just, just not really sure. Like, what does it actually mean? So if they don't know what it means, is it actually important that they know what it means? And that's really what you have to decide is, how important is it? Because if in, in some of our schools, there's a minority because you can go to any kind of Reformed tradition church. Is it important that they know? Just yesterday, okay, I, I really want you to hear this in sort of a, uh, a challenging way. Just yesterday, two kids from our school I had conversations with, both of them questioning whether it was worth even living at all. Now that's a huge issue in our schools. It's a huge issue, right? Suicide, suicidal ideation is a big, big deal. And I don't want to say that reform theology isn't important because it's the framework in which a lot of our schools have been built. But how do you take that reform theology, how important it really is? I got a kid here who's questioning whether it's even worth getting up tomorrow or waking up tomorrow. What am I supposed to do with that? Right? What do I emphasize in my class? And then you have this neo Calvinism and new Calvinism. And that, that came about over the last probably 10 years. It, it kind of goes with the slogan Young, Restless, and Reformed. Some of you have probably heard that before. Uh, John Piper is one of these people. Kevin DeYoung, uh, formerly out of East Lansing. Francis Chan is uh, a neo Calvinist as well. So, kind of a new breed of like, I don't like the old way of doing Calvinism. I want to do it a different way. But some of those people as well, our kids right now, have no idea. Now, they might have seen Francis Chan on the video, but do they really understand his theology? I don't really know. And that's what you'd have to sort of, what do they know? This is something I have um, used as our principle right now as well. Uh, we, we both get this, and this is something that you may want to check into yourself. There's something called Breakpoint. It's a little bit on the conservative side because it comes out of the Colson Center, right? Um, Chuck Colson. But they send out blogs very regularly and uh, pretty much a daily thing. This is one of the things that they wrote on, which was a study from Britain. So this is British kids, but I don't think it's a whole lot different in America. And they did a survey of 15,000 uh, basically students. And the results of the survey were a little bit disturbing. They found between the kids between the ages of 16 and 29. So roughly kind of the Gen Z group, Generation Z group, that 89% of those people in that survey who were between 16 and 29 years old said that their lives lacked meaning and purpose. That's a tremendous amount, 90% were basically, my life has no meaning, no purpose. If it did, know the five points of Calvinism, right? And again, I'm not, that's an important thing, the five points of Calvinism, in terms of understanding being reformed. But if I don't even think my life has value at all, where do I start? What am I supposed to do? Right? And so that's something, again, well, that, that's where we are now. And well, many of you know this because you obviously are teachers. <coughs> Suicide is the second leading cause of death for kids between age 15 and 21. Right? The second leading cause. That should not be. There's something really, really wrong with that is actually a true statistic in America. That's not a, that's not a British statistic. That's an American one. So there's another thing. So the second thing. Uh, where did, how did we get it? Or when did this happen? And I'd like to use something that I, I'd like to give credit, credit to. If you can read this, it says Maps and Mirrors. Uh, that came from, I, I got that from, and I don't know if he originated it, but a guy named Walt Mueller. Walt Mueller is the head of an organization called CPYU, the Center for Parent and Understanding. I would highly recommend that teachers um, subscribe to his blog and get his stuff. It's really, really good. Uses a phrase, maps and mirrors. So he says, you take an event, any event that occurs, 
So let's just use one that we just talked about. 89% of British teens find their life, lives like meaning and purpose. That's an event. That's something that's occurring. So he says, you got to do this. you got to say, there's the thing. So if that's the case, look back in the mirror and say, how do get Like, what, what happened that we're at this point right now? And then if this is what's happening right now, like, what does it mean for, for going forward? Where are we going with this? Like, where is this going to lead? So what's in the mirror? How do we get here? And what's ahead? Where are we going? What are we going to do now? And if you, if you can do those things with your kids, too, to take an issue that they deal with in their own lives right now, what's happening? How do we get here? Where are we going to go? So I'd like us to think about, well, how did we actually get here? Well, what's in the rearview mirror that led us to this point now? We're not as sure what this means. We talk about reform, but do we actually know what we're talking about? So I'm really sort of personally interested in I've spent a lot of time looking at Gen Z stuff. And by the way, I'm going to talk about here a second. There's a, a brand new book that I would highly recommend to anybody. This is, I ju it just came out. But it's called Generation Z Unfiltered. And it's by Tim Elmore, the same guy I told you about just a little while ago. It is chock full of a ton of information. This is not when you sit down and read over a weekend. You, you probably have to read it over a while. But uh, another leading person in understanding what's going on in terms of trends with Generation Z. So some of this stuff here is also from a book called iGen. Uh, I, I actually did a presentation here on last year. And so I actually used this slide. I've used this slide now for about a year. Here's something that none of you in here that I see I, uh, doesn't appear to me are Gen Z. I won't go into all what you are, but uh, I don't think we're in Gen Z. But our kids clearly are. So with our kids in class, what's happening in terms of how things are changing. And a new understanding of faith and life, which affects reform understanding as well, is religion and church. Okay, our kids see religion and church as a whole, as a culture, differently than the way that you and I were, were maybe raised, if especially if you were raised in church. So one thing that's important to realize is that based on research, that uh, most people who study this believe that this generation of young people will be the least religious generation in the history of America. Fewer of them right now live in homes that are considered religious, and so fewer of them will be religious as they get into their father into their adult lives. Church for them is seen as something that they are very skeptical of, because church is a place you go to to find out what you're opposed to, not what you're for, right? And, and if that's the attitude you have about church, and church becomes something you're very sort of wary of. So church is a place where you can go to to have your own beliefs confirmed so that you know what you're opposed to, not necessarily what you are in favor of or believe in. That's how our kids, because of a variety of factors, can see things in church. And say, so how did that happen? Well, it happened gradually, little by little, over time. Uh, some of it, frankly, is due to the influence of Gen X, their parents. Right, and how they are perceiving church and the importance of religion in their families. Because your teachers, I can say this safely in this audience, I always hesitate to say this when I speak to parents, but as a teacher in a Christian high school, you are only as effective as your parents allow you to be. Right? And if your parents place very little value on their kids' understanding or participation in church, you are fighting an uphill battle in your classroom. It's really hard because they trump you. Right? Now you obviously have influence, but that culture is making a difference. Other things as well, and again, I'm not trying to point fingers, but just give examples. 
our kids are aware of this, uh, and I think it's important that we are aware of this too. I don't know if you can see it, and I know some of you probably realize or know who this is, but this is Josh Harris, very, very widely known uh, writer, author, pastor. Uh, he wrote the book, A Kiss Dating Goodbye, which started the whole purity movement back in the late 90s, right? And just this past summer, he basically renounced his faith. He said, I'm out. I'm, I'm done. I'm out. He divorced his wife, uh, and it's just all done. Now, our, our kids are here. It's like, a, this guy does. He, he bails. So why would I, why would I, what's the deal? The guy sold millions of books. He's speaking all over the world. Now he's just out. Uh, this, it's kind of hard to see this here, but different kind of thing. Right around the same time this summer. Uh, this is Marty Sampson from Hillsong. Okay, one of the main people in, in, in this song. And he too said, I think I'm really questioning, I just don't think I believe anymore. Right? If you want to read, by the way, something that's uh, will get you to another side of the story, there's a band that a lot of your kids might know in school called Skillet. Uh, it's, a, it's a Christian rock band, basically, kind of almost a rock band. John Cooper is the lead singer in Skillet, and he wrote an article uh, about these many men jumping from ship on their religion. It's worth reading, especially if your kids are like, what's the deal with Josh here? What's the deal with Mike Samson? Uh, give them the, the John Cooper article. He talks about, really, you can't base your faith on a feeling. And a lot of our kids base, faith, base their faith on emotion and a feeling that they have, but they don't have a lot of foundation of actually conviction underneath it. And so when the feeling goes away, so does the faith. And John Cooper said, we've got to have foundations and principles, not just to feel good and sort of Yes. Yeah. 
and see what has happened in the marriages of the previous generations, and they're saying, I'm out, forget it, I'm done. And in both sexes of marriage, just cannot, cannot underestimate the influence of pornography on uh, our kids' understanding of sexuality, <coughs> sex, and also marriage. Almost every single individual that I have uh, conversations with or try to walk with on an issue when it comes to relational stuff and they're struggling, pornography is somewhere in the mix as a factor that causes some of the problems. So, it, and to say you have to, I think it would be really important that you are having regular conversations in your school about pornography as it relates to their relationship with their boyfriend or girlfriend. In college campuses, Christian or public, rape culture is a real thing. It actually is a real thing. If you did your homework on that, which some of you probably have, you realize that yeah, we have to be talking about this stuff because it affects the way kids perceive their faith. Um, this is obviously one that is very difficult for a lot of people to sort of deal with in, in terms of their schools and their communities because it's just a hard conversation. But our kids are definitely hearing the voices of the culture. Cultural norm, biblical norm. So maybe you have heard this before as well. Two-thirds of Gen Z kids that are raised in Christian homes have zero issue with anything related to the LGBTQ conversation. Okay, so think about that. Two-thirds of the kids who are growing up in Christian homes have zero issue with anything related to the LGBTQ conversation. There's like, yeah, whatever. That doesn't mean they don't care at all. But again, there's so many voices. Like, what am I supposed to do? Right? Now, I'm going to say this with a heavy filter, right? because I know there's probably a lot of you who uh, watched the World Cup this summer, and obviously they did very, very well. But if you watched it as well, if you weren't, it, it felt like to some people, especially older people, it felt a little like if you weren't in favor of the agenda that was driven by sometimes the World Cup team, that somehow you were a bigot. You are a problem. You are the problem because you're not on board with this agenda. So if a younger person hears, like, if you're not with us, you're against us. And so you better get on board, right? And not even talking about the tweets between Rapino and Trump and forget all that. It's just the general idea. This is what we stand for. This is what we're all about. And if you don't like it, some of you know there was a story about a woman who actually did not make the team, who maybe should have made the team, and didn't because she didn't necessarily fall in line with some of the beliefs of some of the other players, right? So that was, again, our kids are hearing that too. Um, and by the way, one other thing I'll point out to you on the, in relation to the sexuality issue is that because the voice of the culture is so loud, our kids now are, are sort of like, well, what is okay? Like, what's normal? What, what's appropriate? So one thing we have seen, because there's the whole issue of, well, are people born this way? They're not born this way? That's not for us to decide right now. That's not our conversation. But behaviors or ideas, let me back that up, ideas and attitudes and theories do actually impact behavior. Because right now, there are more kids, especially as they get into older high school and early college, whose behavior practices uh, are changing more than they were a generation or two ago. So for example, more kids experiment with their sexuality in college than ever have in previous generations. That doesn't mean that they're gay but it means they're willing to experiment with sexuality before they actually settle back into what they really probably are, right? So I, if you were in my session last year, I used the, the two little acronyms, bug and lug. 
Bug is bisexual until graduation. So I'm using my college years to experiment sexually. Lug is lesbian until graduation. Right? Hasbian is I used to be a lesbian, but now I'm not. Right? That is a, that's a new normal that didn't exist in the way it does now. Right? That is the cultural sort of voice that's out there. And then, of course, you have this noise as well with all the stuff that goes on. Not, not even coming close to getting political with this, but just showing you the, the yelling and the screaming that's out there uh, is an issue. And if you saw what I had up here, the fourth one is the fear of offending and tolerance. It's a very ironic thing that the adults in our world are doing a lot of yelling and screaming and offending, and our kids are terrified of offending other people. They don't want to be offensive. So the worst thing you can be called in high school, maybe, is judgmental. You do not want to be called judgmental because that means you're an intolerant person. But they hear all kinds of yelling and screaming and intolerance from their, well, the adults in their world. Again, this is a lot of, a lot of our kids are aware, but they don't want to say anything because they don't want to offend people. Right? They just hear about this stuff and see people yelling, but they don't know what to do. I'm a little nervous, frankly, about how the next year is going to go with high schools uh, and the elections coming up. And it doesn't matter to me at all who you vote for. Or it doesn't, I, I don't care. What I do care about is how that is going to affect our students, uh, with what may come from all the things that are going to come up in this election. I asked my son, like, what is it that really bothers you in culture? Now, some kids, you know, they care more than others. This is a college-age kid. He's a passionate person. And the, the first thing he came up with, what is that really bothers you, like what, what really gets you, is was it really hands to the face? Uh, that's the one thing that really bothered him. Uh, not presidential elections, you know, it's just a football game, the Detroit Lions. So you'd have to have seen the game to understand. But uh, that's a lot of fun. So the next part, what can we actually do? Is there hope? And I always believe it's glass half full. It's not glass half empty, it's glass half full. So what are we supposed to do? I want to give you the results of a private foundations uh, study. This was done over the course of a, a good amount of time. Uh, the results of the study said that by 2050, 2050, 42 million kids raised, current, current Gen Z kids raised in Christian homes will drop faith altogether. 42 million, right? That's based on what's happening culturally, what's based on happening in church, what's based on happening religiously. 42 million. That's a, that would be the biggest single dropout of anything in American history. 2011, um, the Barna the Barna Group uh, put out a book called You Lost Me. Some of you probably heard of it before, and they talked about it could be that in the future we have a very very large dropout of kids from from church and from faith. This is now 2019, and this group is saying here it's going to be about 42 million. The group that is doing this research, they decided to call this something, maybe you've heard this before, not like this is the worst ever, they're calling it the great opportunity. Like here's a chance, okay, this is what they're saying, so what are we going to do? So you can look at it and you can run to the hills and say, well, it's all over, it's all over, and what are we going to do? Or, this is an opportunity to do something that has never been done. But if we're going to do this, how are we going to actually do it? Like what are we going to focus on is the most important thing. And my former pastor used to say, a lot of times in his sermons in our church, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So what is the main thing? That's what I'm asking you in your school to think about when it comes to 
what we historically have sort of emphasized with what's happening currently with our culture, what actually is the main thing. And that's where I will humbly say to you, I don't have all the answers for that. I have some suggestions for this. I could be wrong. Okay, I could be wrong about this. And I want to sound really wrong about that. But one of the things you have to ask yourself, is it the confessions? Is that the main thing? Because when I was in church as a kid, and when I was in catechism as a kid, and when I was at Unity as a high school kid, that is what we were taught. Okay, I was taught the Belgian Confession, the Canada's Door, and the Catechism, the Confessions of the Reformed Faith. Now, you, you might want to just try this. If you go back to school on Monday, ask your high school kids, especially if they're upperclassmen, how many of you know what the Confessions of the Church are? And I'd be interested to see what they would say, right, uh, if they would come up with that, because many of them don't talk about it at all in their churches, even if it says Reformed on the title, and many of them never talk about it in school, but yet they really want to know what they're supposed to believe. So you would have to decide, is this really what I think I need to emphasize? It is important. This is the framework for what it means to be a Reformed Christian. It really is. It's very important stuff. You'd have to decide, is that the main thing? Right? And this, when I went to Dort, I remember it, for some reason it just was impressed on me because in the, in the lectern of this thing, it was a big old huge one, and they had a big old huge emblem on the front of it with all the Dort stuff. And you know, it's a college, so it's got all the stuff you can't understand on it. Um, but one of the things was Soli Deo Gloria. And I, I remember that because it, it, you could see it very clearly every time you, you went there. And my great uncle is actually, uh, was, he passed away years ago now, was B.J. Hunt, who was the founder of Door College. I didn't even know that until I went there, right? That uh, a relative who founded the joint. Uh, and I'm there now, right? And that phrase was so important to him because he was so, so strong in his Reformed theology. He knew his Reformed theology. But there was a practical side to him, too. It's like, we've got to make sure we do this. And this was a long time ago. But is it solace? How many of your kids know those, or could list two of them? What are the solos of the Reformed faith? They're important that you know what they mean, because if you don't understand as a student that your salvation is by grace alone, then you've missed completely the idea of what it means to be a Reformed, right? That you have to know what that means. Otherwise, well, it's the difference between you and the kid who goes to a school where he's taught that it's what, it's what you do that saves you. So clearly, these are important, right? Is it this? Is it doctrine? This was, I don't know if you can see this. This was the book that I was handed as a first year high school teacher walking into Unity saying, here's your curriculum. Louis Berkhoff, Systematic Theology. And I thought, I think I'm going to become an excavator uh, after I started looking through that book. I didn't teach it. I made, a, I made up an outline. I tried to figure out how to do this in high school. But uh, I don't know if anybody uses, and I know it was used quite a bit back in the day as a resource and a reference, is Louis Berkhoff's Systematic Theology. So, I think he actually was associated or taught at Calvin College, too, possibly. Maybe you Calvin historians can tell me that. But, uh, uh, yeah, so is it doctrine? Do we need to teach our kids Reformed doctrine? Is that important for them today? Well, some of it clearly is. Uh, but it's all of it. Another thing I want to get you to think about related to kids. Yeah, this is a long option here, to a degree, but... I chose uh, one of my sons that loves to draw. So he, this is a pencil drawing that he did. It took him a long time. Okay, obviously he likes the Wii too, so this is just a Wii controller. 
uh, you drove in, you know, someone playing in the week. And I don't know how long it took specifically, but it took a long time. And uh, it's really, it's, you know, I hate to brag on my kid, but I think he did a pretty good job. And a lot of our kids at Unity, yours too, you know, they get into art class and do the pencil drawings, and these are very, very intricate drawings. And if you think of your faith like a pencil drawing, which is a fair thing you could do, say, it took me time to put this all down here, I know what I believe, I this all, it looks really, really good. The only issue with that is that if your faith is compared to a pencil drawing, then one thing with lead is you can just erase it. It's only on the surface. And I fear sometimes that what we teach kids in terms of information tells them what they're supposed to believe, but it doesn't give them the why. Of why does this matter in 2018? Tell me what, uh, what is the why uh, underneath this? So a way you can maybe consider this, I have to hop down here, click on this a minute. I showed this to our parents uh, this year and, and uh, our kids at school too. This is, hopefully if it works, you should see a, a watercolor, right? You'll see the brush on the top with the watercolor on it. And it starts with the same paper, white, right? And as, uh, as the artist puts more color on it, the color starts to bleed in. And the difference between what you saw and what you're seeing here is that the color going on this paper is permanent. Okay, and the word that we are using uh, at Unity is infused. It literally is infused into that paper. You cannot erase it. You'd have to destroy the paper completely. But even then, the watercolor will still be on the paper. So maybe the goal of a Christian school when it comes to helping our kids understand who they are related to faith is like a watercolor painting where we are taking the brush and the Bible is the Word of God and we're taking that Bible and taking time to dab, dab, color, color, running down and they're becoming infused with what that says and it becomes part of who they are, not just what they believe. And I think if we can figure out how to maybe do that uh, and with our communities, maybe then that makes a difference. That's the starting point. Okay, so you say, well, what are we supposed to do? Well, you have to take a look, and I know these are hard to see. I've shown this before to our parents. I want to show it to you as well. Uh, this is a list here of the things that the seniors currently at Unity, that was, this is 80 kids that I took this from, the same 80 I asked the other question. I asked them the question, what is it that you have right now as an 18-year-old kid, 17-year-old kid on your mind that you would like some sort of an answer to? Tell understand how to do your life in faith. What is it that's on your mind right now? So 80 kids, this is literally the stuff that they said, right here. Right? So I want you to notice what is important to our kids. Now, it's first semester when I did this. This was the first week of school. So it's typical that this happens. But this right here, that was first. Okay, that was the most optimistic thing is college. That won't be next semester when I ask the same question to the next group of seniors that I get. Right? What is almost always in the top few is this one, relationships. Overall, what is the number one if I add two semesters up together? It's right here, LGBTQ. Now are, are, are the kids at Unity all experimenting LGBTQ? No, but they're hearing lots of noise and they need to understand if you're telling me I need, I need a little life of faith, how do I understand this issue? So it isn't necessarily issues that I think you'll see again, you'll see uh, things that are specifically related to faith on here as well. But if it's just talk 
I'm pretty sure that your kids are not that much different when it comes to these kind of things than the kids at, at Unity. I think we're probably all somewhat similar in that way. Right? What I, what I hope that we don't do, kind of like the pencil drawing, is to make what we teach our kids like frosting on the cake. We struggle with this a little bit still with our parents uh, in a Christian high school. If a kid has an issue or something goes wrong or they, they behave in a way that they shouldn't, I'm sure some of you have gotten this at your schools as well. I thought that was supposed to be a Christian school. I thought that was supposed to be a Christian school. I thought these were supposed to be Christian kids. There is still to a degree of perception out there that because the name Christian is on the school's sign, and that the families are, for the most part, church-going families, that somehow the kids don't wrestle with these issues. And I would say to parents, the kids in this building struggle with the same thing the kids at Huntsville Public struggle with. Now, they may have different families to a degree, but not very much. What we do with them is different. Right? So, I hope that we don't just put frosting on the cake. We want to be actually what the cake is made of. Okay? We want to teach them what the cake is made of as uh, it's core. So, last part. We have an opportunity to do a few things, perhaps. And I'll use it that way, an opportunity to. And first thing I would suggest that maybe we have an opportunity to do with everything we do in school as it relates to, okay, what about reform? Ask so what? Excuse me. You can, if you can't answer the question, so what? When you're teaching something in your school, why is this important to know? Now, granted, in some classes, there are some things that kids don't really want to know, but they still have to know that. But when it comes to issues that are central to who they are or what it is you want them to understand in terms of their belief, there has to be a so what. So if you're going to teach TULIP as a part of the curriculum in a Bible class, that's fine. But then you'd have to know why. Here's why we believe this is important in 2019. Here's the so what for that. Simon Sinek, some of you know, start with why. If it's a great book, start with why. If you know the why, people will follow along. If you can't tell them why you're doing is important, they'll believe it, they'll believe it is important. So ask them so what, with your chapels, with your classes, with how you do things uh, as, as school activities, what's the so what uh, in, in what you're doing. Uh, realize how the Bible matters. That's worded and unusual, and I realize that. But realize how the Bible matters. There's a, a little bit of tendency sometimes to make the Bible sort of a, a supplement rather than the starting point uh, in, in Christian schools. Uh, I don't know if you've had it, I'm sure that some of you have, but you may have noticed that there seems to be a little bit of an issue of biblical literacy amongst younger people, even amongst uh, younger adults as well. I just don't know. Uh, I cannot take for granted at all in my school that if I say go to um, Philemon, Forget Philemon, go to Acts, right? Go to Acts, that they'll know where that is. They might not. Now, that doesn't because they're stupid. They're really bright kids, for the most part. But, um, they, so I have to give page numbers, and you have to be okay with saying, I gotta meet these kids where they are, not where I think they have to be, and give them the page number, right? Now, a personal preference, we, have, we try to really, really minimize our phones in, at uh, Unity with our kids. Um, so I don't really like using phones in class at all for looking at Bible passages. I really think there's something, and maybe it's because I'm an old guy, older guy now, but maybe it's because of that, but I really think there's a value in being able to open up a book and write in it, underline it, highlight it, flip the pages, and feel the Bible. Bibles typically do feel different than most of the books because of the way the paper is, right? I don't know if that's a Holy Spirit thing or 
people on this. I went to hear Tony Campolo speak a couple of years ago. If you know the story of Tony Campolo, a couple of years ago, he changed his mind on the issue of gay marriage. Uh, he went from saying, I, I'm opposed to it, to saying, I'm not opposed to it. And uh, when I went to hear him, this was after he had you know, changed his mind on that issue. And he said, and he, he got to know him a little bit, he tries to make a joke out of lots of things. In a humorous way, he said, if you need me to come and speak to your organization, i got a lot of open days now. Right? Because I did. As soon as he made that sort of announcement about his own belief, a lot of people dumped him completely. Like, we're done with you. Right? Um, and he said at that meeting, I could be wrong. The way I think now, I could be wrong. But what he helped me see, and I'm not going to even speak to whether I agree or disagree with him, that's not the point. But what I appreciated about Tony Campolo is he talked about Jesus the night that I went to hear him speak, and it made me see Jesus the man in a way I never really thought about before. Like it made me feel like this guy is kind of like me in some ways, in terms of what he had to deal with, what he had to face, what he had to go through. Now he's different because he's Jesus, but he also wasn't as different as I thought. And I think a lot of our kids still have this image of just the white robe, you know, and long hair, just kind of walking around, chilling, and, you know, with the disciples. And that's not the Jesus that kids in 2018 need to hear. They need to hear about Maverick. Right? They need to hear about a guy who was willing to stand up for what he believed in. He wasn't afraid to say, this is what is right, this is what is not. And if our kids can see Jesus that way, I think that gives them confidence for their own faith. Right? Because Jesus, some people say today, Jesus was a great guy. He was a spiritual guy, but he wasn't religious. Completely disagree with that. Jesus was very, very religious. He talked about it all the time. So, we introduce Jesus. Uh, one thing I think is super important uh, for today's teenagers, even for all of us, to, to that matter, for that matter, is ask more and answer less. I think uh, when you get to high school, especially, there's a certain degree where we feel like we have to give our kids answers. And I think it's important to let our kids wrestle with uh, questions more than just giving them answers. And so ask questions. So if a kid says, a student says to you, I'm wondering about this, how do you feel about that? And I, I know some kids can be a little bit annoyed by this, but there's really a, a means to an end here. So, well, what do you think about this? Well, I don't know. Well, 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 you asked the question, so what, what, what was the reason you asked that question? Well, what's going through your mind? Well, I'm wondering about, well, did, did you come up with that from church? Or like, where did that come from? Well, why? Okay, that, that makes sense to me. So what do you think about this? And it's, it's helping them discover their own way through the questions that they have, as opposed to saying, here's what you should think. Right? That, that's difficult, and it takes some time to, to, to maybe learn how to do that in a classroom. But if we can ask more and provide less quick answers to kids, I think they learn to own their faith in a way that maybe is a little more long-lasting. And that actually is quite reformed. Right? Like, why do I actually believe this? Uh, I also very strongly believe, and I'm sure many of you do too as well, that you learn, that you lead and learn through connections. And I think the first one to start with is that uh, whether we recognize it or not, our students are looking to us as models of Jesus. They really do. I believe that 100%. And relationally, if you can help your kids see Jesus through you, that will give them a little bit of a window to say, I want to learn more about my relationship with Jesus as well. And if that relationship starts to grow, then they will have a better understanding how to relate themselves and the culture from a Christian perspective. And I don't want to put all the pressure on teachers, but frankly and bluntly, for a lot of our students today, you are the main Christian in their life. 
Now, for some of them, it's their parents, but for some of them, it is not. You might be one of the main Christian models in their life. You might be the Jesus in their life. And so what we do is really, really important. That's why I agree with the great opportunity. It's an opportunity to do a lot of stuff with the students that we have. And then lastly, this is super reformed. This is like Abraham kind of reformed, right? Is that if you can teach kids that every single thing in life is about your faith and help them see why that is, I think that makes a huge difference in how they sort of perceive the decisions, their relationships, their families, their jobs. Everything is about your faith. Now, we're using something at our school this year. We're calling it the Infusion Project goes with the idea of the paintbrush that you saw, uh, that we're trying to get our kids to see that all of your life is faith and all of your faith is life. Those two things are completely together. It's not your life over here and then your faith over here. And all of the reformers would be clapping their hands if they heard that because that's what Reformation theology is really all about. Right? It's Reformation theology is about transformation and restoration. And if we can teach our kids that the kingdom of God is about right now and everything in it, and help them see that it matters in our culture, that's infusion, and that's reform theology. So that's why I said at the very beginning, it is now more than ever, because although the way we understand it, and some of the details are a little different, I also believe that there's the things that we are talking about culturally, those are still the same, and that's, we can do that in an extremely reformed way, maybe with just some of the changes in how we understand it, the language that we use. So, that's what I've got. Are there any questions anybody has this afternoon at all? I know it was a lot. I know it was fast. I'll tell you what I will do. I will stick around here for a little while. If you have questions, comments, uh, suggestions, I will be very open to them. Thank you very much for being here uh, this afternoon, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you.